0: So, I don't know how many of you have seen the movie, The Little Rascals, All right? So, some of you have maybe seen it back when it was black and white movies, right? But, hey, I've seen them, right? I, I, not that I was alive when they made them, but I've seen them, okay? I'm just saying. But I'm talking about the newer one, right? So, the the, the newer movie, There's there's this moment in the movie that I watched it growing up, and my brother and I used to quote at each other, and it fit in today. And so you have two kids sitting there doing a trade with each other, right? And the one tells him, I'll trade you a pickle for a nickel. And the other one looks at him, all serious, and he says, how about two cents? And they're like, okay, right? (laughs) So, worst trade deal ever, right? This kid says, I'll trade you a pickle for a nickel, and the kid's like, how about two cents? He's he's hurting himself on the trade, right? I only use that as an example because the title of the message today is Trading Worship. And what we're going to see here is two trades that happen. There's a a human trade that's offered, and there's a Jesus trade that's offered. And we're going to see how distinctly different these two trades are. We saw last week, as we discussed and studied the, Jesus turning the water into wine, right? we talked about how, how the curtain is starting to be pulled back a little bit. right? That, that Jesus now is in his ministry, and he's starting to reveal more and more of who the Father is. We saw in John chapter 1 that this is what Jesus is doing. Right? He's, he's manifesting the glory of the Father. He's making known who the Father is and so we saw some of that with the water and wine, that there's this new kingdom kind of being ushered in, that there's this kingdom of abundance that's, that's coming in. And we see this process of the curtain being pulled back continue today, but today it happens with Jesus in the temple. Now most of us probably know the story from the other three Gospels, where Jesus cleanses the temple at the end of his ministry Right As his ministry comes to a close, as he's approaching the cross, Jesus cleanses the temple. John tells us now that there's an instance at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he did it as well. So there's debate on, did John move the story, or are there really two distinct ones? And I think the details are different enough, if you pay attention to the three Gospels versus John's, The details are different enough that I think we can say that John probably is placing this one at the beginning because it actually happened at the beginning, and there actually probably was another one that happened at the end. So let's read it together. We're going to be in John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So first we see the human trade. John continues on with Jesus' travel, right? We know he was in Cana for the wedding. We see he goes to Capernaum. We know Now he goes to Jerusalem, and he does so because of the Passover, right? Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, right? So... There were certain times throughout the year that the Jews would gather in Jerusalem for certain feasts in order to celebrate together, and Passover was one of them. Passover was the time for them to come together and remember what happened in Exodus, right? We remember this during the plagues in Egypt that the angel of death passed over those who had the blood over their doorposts. He passed over, so there was a celebration of their deliverance, right? Not only did they not lose their firstborn because of the blood, but they were then delivered out of Egypt because that was kind of the final straw that allowed them to escape. And so this was a time throughout the Old Testament, throughout Israel's history, that the Jews would gather together in Jerusalem in order to worship, in order to celebrate the Passover. Ultimately, it meant that they got to end up in the Promised Land, though we know it was a long process to get there because of their own sin. Now, when they came to Jerusalem for this feast, it was required that each of them would make a sacrifice in the temple during this time of remembrance. And so it was much easier for people who were traveling long distances for them to buy an animal upon arriving in Jerusalem to sacrifice rather than making one of theirs travel the entire distance to sacrifice it. There was nothing wrong with that. Jesus isn't condemning that. We're going to see here that what happened though is they turned their worship center into a market right? So that's the second point here in the outline. Under human trade, they turned their worship to market. Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Right? It was a logical thing. If people were traveling long distances, we should set up a market for them to buy their animals so that they can offer their sacrifices. And not only that, but we're going to also, in this place, include money changers. Because at this time in the year when the Passover was, this is also when their taxes were due. And they were only allowed to pay their taxes in a certain type of currency. So they might have had a different type from being far away. So they would gather together, and there were these money changers where they would exchange their currency so they could actually pay their taxes in the currency required by the government so it makes sense of course we're going to have a market of animals of course we're going to have money changers all of this, it's it's an important time for celebration but we're going to make it as convenient as possible but the problem does not lie in the fact that they set up a market or that they had money changers the issue lies in the location of it right look at where they set it up at in the temple the temple was meant to be a sacred place, a place of seriousness, a, a place of worship, a place of, of prayer. And though it likely was that they just set up this market in the outer courts of the temple and the part that was still partially outdoors, there were still weighty matters going on inside the temple. And the outer courts were still considered to be part of the temple. I mean, just within that temple, within the confines of it, was the Ark of the Covenant. Which, remember, there was a man who dropped dead for touching it in the Old Testament. When it began to fall over, he put his hand up to touch it, and he died. He dropped dead because he touched something that was so holy. There was the Holy of Holies, right, where the high priest was only allowed to enter once a year, and when he entered, they had to tie a rope around him in case he died inside so they could pull him out so nobody else had to try to go in, because then they would die as well. So this is the place of the presence of Yahweh, the living God. The God that had been delivering and saving and interacting with Israel throughout the entire Old Testament. And what has happened to this holy place of worship? It's become a marketplace. Think of, if you've seen the movie The Sandlot, right? So I'm a baseball guy, so think of The Sandlot. Think of what Smalls, the main kid, does with the baseball signed by Babe Ruth. It's in this sacred holy place, right on his stepdad's cabinet, up on this holder. And he grabs it and he takes it outside to play with. He takes something, this holy grail of baseball memorabilia, and he turns it into a plaything. Now, that's just a baseball. Think how much more. When the holy place of worship, the presence of Yahweh, is turned into a marketplace. I mean, just imagine. Just imagine if behind those archways there was a bunch of sheep and pigeons and cows, and you're sitting in here trying to worship. How well is that going to work out? How, how well are you going? To, how serious are you going to take that with all these sounds coming through? That's exactly what's going on here. So Jesus responds as you would expect him to. Verse fifteen, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So Jesus. Responds with a righteous anger, frustration, right? He makes a whip and he drives all the animals out. He pours out all the coins. He flips over the tables. And then he goes on to speak. Verse 16, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. He tells them, get rid of all of it. Don't turn God's house into a market. Can you begin to understand some of the weight of the emotion Jesus is feeling here? Right? This is his father. This is the one that he has in eternity past been in relationship with. And now he's come to earth. And the one place that his father is supposed to be present and worshipped has now become a marketplace. In a sense, the temple holding the presence of his father has become a grounds for auctioning off animals and a cash express. This is the human trade. Mankind, left to ourselves, will take the sacred and exploit it. We will abuse it. Just look at the world around us right now. Just look at our culture. How many things that were once sacred have now turned secular? Right? Church on Sundays and even on Wednesdays used to be non-negotiables. Now it's free game. Or human life was valued simply for being human life. Now there's doubts and questions of, well, when you get to a certain point is it really valuable anymore? Or acts that were reserved for marriage with a man and a woman are now, that were once off limits not long ago, entertainment are now, you can't watch a show without seeing it. Or the existence of God was the common agreed upon belief until a couple hundred years ago when the Enlightenment finally hit. It doesn't take much to see that humans left on our own will always take the sacred and turn it into the secular. But let's go one step further here with Jesus and see what what else did his disciples notice. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So we see not only did Jesus see something wrong with this, but Jesus was full of passion, full of zeal, about this wrong that was being done. It's actually a quote from Psalm 69 that John uses here. In Psalm 69, David is facing all sorts of opposition, but in the midst of it, he's passionate about building a house for the Lord. Remember, David wants to build a house for God, but God says, no, your son's going to do it. There's too much blood on your hands. So, But David's passionate about building a temple for God's presence to dwell in. Up until this point, they only had the tabernacle. He wants to build a permanent structure. So he has passion for God's house. He has a passion for Yahweh's presence. And the disciples, either in this moment, or we find out that they also have an epiphany after the resurrection, they see this same passion in Jesus. It's not that Jesus was just a little disappointed in the scene. He had a zeal a passion for the presence of his Father. He felt something that everyone else wasn't feeling at the moment, right? That's why they set up the market. If they felt a zeal for the Father's house, they would have never set up the market in the first place. It was not simply enough to just state that, some, that what was going on was wrong, but Jesus says, I have to do something about it. I feel so strongly about my Father being worshipped in the right way. We see that there's a connection between what we worship and the passion that we have. I don't know if you all have ever, like, just sometimes videos pop up, right? Like on your Facebook or YouTube or whatever it is. And I had one pop up this week that I watched. And it was interesting. It was mostly teenagers, but it was children who... You could say, in spiritual terms, were worshipping their video games. And their parents decided to literally throw them out the window. Because like, their kids weren't cleaning their rooms, they were being disrespectful, so they decided as a punishment they were going to take the game system and throw it out the window or put it on the thing and smash it with a sledgehammer or whatever it was. And you watch the reactions, the passion in the kids who get their game smashed. There's a connection between what you worship and what you're passionate about. So I say that to say, brothers and sisters, choosing to worship and your passion for worship both matter to God. When I say choosing to worship, you might automatically think of church on Sunday mornings. And it is that, but it's more than that. God does care about whether you show up on Sunday morning to choose to worship with your corporate body. But God also cares about what you give your worship to throughout your week. Just look at this passage. Their worship was what they valued the most. They worshiped whatever they valued. The human decision, the human trade, is that we're going to value whatever we consider to be the best for ourselves. Not what God desires, but what we think is best for us. Thus, humans end up giving up most of their time, attention, money, to whatever they deem most valuable. And in our day and age, this can be a number of things. You can worship or place value upon your kids... Your job, your popularity, your status, your possessions, and this could go on and on and on. But what we end up doing is when we worship those things, we end up sacrificing the sacred. Because we're now worshiping less than the sacred. So let's take a couple of these for example. Take your kids. You can sacrifice the sacred in kids. You can care more about your child's education, about the sports that they're in, or about the talents that they have, rather than whether they're walking faithfully with the Lord. Or your job can stop being the means to display Jesus in the way that you work with excellence, as the Bible tells us to do, But instead, you can replace it with the secular of it's the means for me to find my self-fulfillment rather than displaying Christ. Or if you're seeking after popularity, you begin to seek after the approval of others rather than seeking the salvation of others. Or if you're seeking status, you you see an earthly goal to reach, an earthly goal that isn't faithfulness to the Lord. Or if your possessions become the end goal, you... Think of them as something to hold on to rather than something that you've been blessed with to be generous with. So, brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning what are you choosing to worship? And the second point is not just what you choose to worship is important, but your passion for worship is important. We kind of touched a little bit on it, but it's an important aspect. We often choose what has a grip. On our hearts. But you also can choose to participate in what looks like worship, but do it without any passion involved. That type of worship also is not a worship that is pleasing to the Lord. So if you're coming to church simply to please your parents, or please your spouse, or please your in laws, or whoever it is, that's not passion. Or if you're praying together before a meal, but you're only doing it out of routine and you're not truly seeking the Lord's will for your life or your family or for situations going on in your life, that's not passion. Or if you're sharing a Bible verse with your child or with your coworker, but you're only doing it because you know you'll feel guilty if you don't do it and you really don't care about whether it affects them or not, you're not doing it out of passion. God wants you to worship Him vigorously. It's okay. To smile in worship. It's okay to weep in worship. It's okay to sit before the Lord and sigh. So first, what are you choosing to worship? And second, if you say you're choosing the Lord, do you have a zeal for Him? A passion for Him? Do you feel in the experience of this? Because left to ourselves we will fail. But if we take this next trade, the Jesus trade, we can experience what it means to truly worship the Lord. So that leads us to the second part here, the Jesus trade. As you might expect, the Jews are troubled by what Jesus just did. He has literally just shut down their entire market during the prime season. This is Passover. Everybody needs to make a sacrifice. And now we have no animals. They're all driven out. But notice their question when they come to him in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? First of all, how about the fact that Jesus just single-handedly cleared out your temple? Is that not sign enough? Right? This is a sign that was just already just given to them before their very eyes. People don't just randomly come into the temple and drive out all the merchants. That was a sign in and of itself. But also, do you catch what they're doing here? They're trying to avoid responsibility. There is no remorse in them. The Messiah just rebuked the entire group of people at the temple. And they are so consumed with money, with convenience, that they start to say, well, what gives you the right to tell us we can't do this? They want to stay in this darkness. But Jesus, who is the light, just entered into it and burst open a bunch of light. And Jesus sees right through their question. This question is not, if you have authority, we want to listen to you. It's, we don't want to listen to you. We don't think you can really give us a sign, so we're going to do whatever we can to dismiss you so we can go back to having our market in the temple. But then he makes this statement that absolutely floors them. Verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What in the world did Jesus just say to them? Right? So we have two layers to this. The first layer is Jesus, in one sense, is speaking prophetically about their literal physical temple. Right? Since he had to just go in and cleanse it, they were already destroying it, in one sense. They had already destroyed what the whole purpose of the temple was supposed to be by allowing it to become a marketplace. But on top of that, we know from history that a couple decades later in A.D. 70, this temple actually is destroyed and never built again, at least not till today. It's never been built, never been rebuilt. Their temple is destroyed from A.D. 70 until our modern day and age. But we also know Jesus is speaking much bigger than a physical temple here. So that's the second layer. We see Jesus is speaking also about himself. Verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But John gives us this note here, right? Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. This is the point that the Jews utterly miss. But John doesn't miss it. John makes a note of it. This is the Jesus trade. The trade that Jesus offers is you lose the physical temple, but now you get to see God's presence exist in a person. Mainly in the Son of God who's standing before your very eyes. Right? Remember last week, the water turned into wine, pointing to the beginning of a new kingdom? We're seeing these two kingdoms start to overlap here a little bit. The old age of the physical temple is coming to an end, and a new age is being ushered in where your temple is now Jesus. Jesus is your way to access the Father, to the point that Paul even will say later that you and I can be called the temple. Because in Christ... We now have access to God, so we are where God is displaying himself and where God is present in our current day and age. There's not a physical building anymore, so we see that the old age is coming to an end. The physical temple will no longer be there, but there's a new age Jesus is ushering in. It's an age of a better temple. What Jesus does here is point to them to a better way of life than where they're living at right now. We'll actually see this a couple chapters later in chapter 4 where Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well. She has a concern because she's a Samaritan and she's not supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship, right? Because they're unclean. They're not supposed to be with the full-blooded Jews, if you want to call it that. Jesus gives some hope to her. Let me just read these verses, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Jesus tells her, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus gives this glimpse of hope to this woman at the well that there's coming a day, there's a day being ushered in right now with Jesus where you're not going to have to go to the temple to worship the Father. But you can worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's not going to be based on one temple anymore. But all those who believe in Jesus, no matter where you're at, can have access to the Father, can walk in relationship to God and then Jesus goes on, right? The sign that they asked for, Jesus points them to it here. It's a sign of resurrection. So they say, what sign do you give to show that you have the authority to tell us what to do with the temple? Jesus says, here's my trade. I'm getting rid of that physical temple. I'm the new temple. And guess what? I'm gonna, you're going to destroy it, and three days later, I'm going to raise it up. And you know what? Just like the Jews missed the sign of Jesus cleansing the temple, the Jews missed the sign of Jesus' resurrection. That's the point. Them asking for a sign is proof that they didn't really want a sign. Jesus actually responds to this a little more even clearly in Matthew chapter 12. So follow these verses with me real quick. Matthew 12, verses 38 and 39. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. Evil and adulterous generations ask for signs. And Jesus says, I'll give you one sign, the sign of the prophet of Jonah, which is what? That Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights, just like Jesus was in the grave for three days and three nights. Jesus tells them, my sign to you is the resurrection. Jesus tells them here, my sign to you is you're going to destroy this temple in three days. I'm going to raise it up. But John doesn't miss this. Though the Jews miss it, John doesn't miss it because he tells us in verse 22, When therefore he was raised from his dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. After Jesus' resurrection, his disciples look back at this moment and say, that's what Jesus was talking about, that's the sign, that's what all of this is based upon, is that Jesus has power, has authority over not just the earth, over death. The dots start to get connected. This was never about rebuilding a physical temple. The resurrection ends up being the crescendo of all the signs. But only those who have hearts that believe will see it as one. Which we see in verse 22 is the final point. It results in belief. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Everything Jesus says and does is going to split people up. It's going to split between those who believe and those who are in unbelief. Some will respond like the Jews did here. Pure unbelief. We want to stay where we are. We're going to do whatever we can to dismiss whatever you're saying so that we don't have to follow it. They're going to ask questions and say, is there any way that we can dismiss these radical statements this guy is saying? Some will actually respond with an unbelief that might first look like belief. We'll actually see that next week. But we see that As time goes on, the hearts of those people are revealed. There's many people throughout the Gospel of John that when Jesus says a really radical statement, they have to walk away. Because they can't follow it. But then you have the other side. You have the disciples here who respond with belief. Belief in Scripture and believe in Jesus' Word. Jesus is offering this trade for people. He says, you leave your calloused, your cold-hearted, your old way of worship, the worship that has really turned a holy place into a marketplace, you leave all that and follow me. It's a life that may look dirty, it's a life that might be bloody, it's a life that might be costly, but it's a life where you'll actually experience what it means to truly worship. In 1971, the New York Mets made a trade. There was a pitcher named Jim Fregosi. He had been in the running for the most valuable player in the Major League Baseball for eight years in a row. And he had had multiple years as a voted in as an all-star. So not only was he a fan favorite, but he was considered valuable by the baseball world as he had eight years in a row of being voted as a possible most valuable player. And the Mets decided to trade him, which would seem like a costly thing, right? Anybody who has any sort of connection to a sports team, right, you have someone that's been a beloved member of that team for, say, 10 years, who's been in the running for MVP all those years, who's been voted on as a fan-favorite All-Star all those years. It's a costly thing to say, we're going to get rid of this person. It was a big name for them to give up, and they got a couple players in return. One of them was named Nolan Ryan, who, if you know anything about baseball, becomes known as the, right, the Express Right? who comes and breaks all sorts of records, who comes and does things that nobody has ever seen a powerhouse pitcher quite do. He has all these awards, all these records that he sets. Jesus comes to us and he says, he says things that might step on our toes a little bit. And he might say, there's going to be some cost. You're going to have to give something up. You're going to have to give up a certain way of life in order to take this trade. But he says, my sign to you is the resurrection. It's the sign that those who trust in Jesus will see what it means to experience true worship. So brothers and sisters, will you hide the worship Jesus calls you to? Or will you run to him? You can come up with all sorts of questions to try to dismiss what Jesus' call for your life looks like. What worship of him really looks like. Questions that might sound like, does he really want me to forgive everyone who wrongs me? Did he really mean that I should be generous with all of the money I have? Can't the church just teach my family about God instead of me having to do it at home? Would Jesus really want me to feel awkward if I tried to share the gospel with this person at work? But in all of those questions, you're doing exactly what the Jews did. You're trying to avoid the clear statements Jesus has set in front of you. They might be hard to take in. They might be radical statements. They might be drastically different from anything the world is telling you to live for. But you know what's even worse? You and I can look back on history and we have a sign that the Jews didn't even have yet. We know Jesus' resurrection. He was just pointing towards it and they missed it. But they even miss it after it happens. May we not do the same thing. The death and resurrection of Jesus is your sign. The sign that everything in your life is meant to be about him. The sign that everything in human history is about the glory of God. That it's all about your restoration to him. So when Jesus makes radical statements... When Jesus steps on your toes, when Jesus gets you a little jittery, will you ask questions, trying to dismiss and get out of following those radical statements? Or will you remember his death and resurrection as your sign and say, I can't do anything but run to him? Because it's only in trusting in him that you get what he's offering here, that you get the better temple. The way to the Father for all who believe in Jesus. The way that you get to the Father is that your sins are paid for as you trust in what Christ has done on the cross. But as you trust in what he's done on the cross, as you share in his death, as you die to your old way of life, you also get to share in his resurrection. You get to enter into a new way of life. A life where you experience what it means to truly worship. And a life where you understand what it means to be passionate about that worship. To be zealous for that worship. To have affections for God. Where you're not choosing things just out of of, obligation anymore. But you're choosing things because you truly desire to follow all of these radical statements that Jesus makes. So what will you do this morning? Will you ask questions and try to hide? Or will you run to Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, may we recognize ourselves in the story. That way too often in life, we can be much more like the Jews than the disciples. That we can turn things that are sacred into secular. That we can ask questions to avoid being fully committed to you rather than simply let your word speak for itself and follow it. So I ask this morning that you would break down the walls around our hearts that prevent us from following you wholeheartedly. Stir our affections to live according to every word that Jesus has spoken. May we not try to dismiss any of it or hide from any of it, but may we allow it to fill our hearts and expose the parts of our lives that are not being faithful to it. And may we repent. May we turn away from the old way of life that we might share in the new life, the life that Jesus gives us in his resurrection. We thank you for the cross, Father, that you forgive us. We also thank you for the resurrection, that you give us new life. If only we would trust in Jesus, commit our entire hearts, our entire lives to him. May we walk out of here this morning more faithful than when we walked in. Help us this week to consider what it means to worship you every day, not just on Sundays. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.